Reforming the Senate Filibuster, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Democrats have full control of government, but face a big constraint on their agenda and their ability to reform Republicans' long-term advantages. The Senate filibuster and the requirement for 60 votes to cut off debate and vote on underlying legislation. That's meant calls for reform, but also threats from minority Republicans. How likely is reform? What role does the filibuster serve? And what does that tell us about contemporary parties and policymaking? On this special conversational edition, I talked to Sarah Bender of George Washington University and the Brookings Institution about her research and commentary on the filibuster's history and role in today's Senate. Here's our conversation. So many of the uh, myths about the filibuster that you uh, reviewed in your book, Politics or Principles, have uh, endured. You weren't able to defeat them. So uh, what has changed uh, since then and and why are those myths so enduring? Uh, So great. And thanks for uh, having me. Um, So that's a good question. I think it's helpful first if I just briefly uh, categorize the myths. So what were the myths that uh, Steve Smith and I were writing about uh, some 25 years ago when we wrote uh, Politics of Principle? Because some I would say we've made a little bit of progress on and some remain deeply, uh, deeply entrenched. So first, and just briefly, first is sort of the myth of the origins of the filibuster, Uh, the idea that it was part of the framers' vision of the Senate and part of the early Senate. Um, I'll just pick through them and then we come back to them. Second, the myth of sort of the 19th century that senators were just all committed to free speech, the great and glorious, uh, the world's greatest deliberative body, and nobody ever wanted uh, to have any type of rule that would limit debate. Um, third, there's this idea that the myth or the, uh, the myth that the filibuster was reserved for like the greatest issues of the day compared to today where everything is filibustered. Uh, that turns out to be myth as well. Uh, The fourth myth is that the filibuster really, at the end of the day, has done little harm. That's a myth. And then finally, that myth that majorities have always wanted it this way. And that turns out is a little little trickier. So where have we made progress? I I think there is finally growing a recognition, uh, even among senators, uh, that the filibuster was not original to the Senate in that it likely emerged out of a what I might think of as a procedural mishap uh, early in the 19th century. Um, I see, you know, you turn on, I try not to, well, I try not to turn on uh, cable news, but sometimes when you turn on cable news, you'll hear all these uh, anchors saying, well, this is the fault of Aaron Burr. It was Aaron Burr who created it and so forth. The other myths, I think, a uh, little less, a uh, little less progress. Um, the, the issues here is that we obviously not everybody has their noses deep in Senate history, and the Senate history tells us just a couple of things. First, that majorities uh, have long sought to limit debate in the Senate. This is not a new problem; it's an age-old problem for the Senate, and that issue is really at the root of many of the myths I just ticked off. It was a problem in the 19th century. Uh, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, orders of the Senate, they all wanted limits on debate. Uh, It goes for the myth there of like the great issues. They were partisan filibusters in the 19th century, right? We've spent a lot of uh, time in recent weeks in Washington. There's discussions of how the filibuster was used uh, before the Civil War uh, to stop uh, to uh, protect slavery 
uh, to stop voting rights and civil rights. But there were a lot of petty filibusters. Uh, who should be the printer of the Senate? Uh, should we take out the censor of Andrew Jackson from the Senate Journal? I mean, there was petty stuff in there. And so all these notions that the filibuster had this great and glorious past, and now it's abused, none of that, none of that is true. And I don't know that we'll really ever make a lot of progress on that, given that it requires people to kind of put aside their contemporary blinders uh, and think about sort of the Senate as a long, long standing institution. So the most uh, recent historical controversy is over the extent to which it, it is based in a racial history. So I think we sort of res- resolved that it, it wasn't in, it, it wasn't created for that reason, but of course has a very long racial history. But, but what, I guess, what, what should be the takeaway there and, and how much should that matter to our consideration of it today? So I think that's a, 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 hard, a harder question to answer than it seems. So as you said, look, the filibuster we know was rooted, not originated, but rooted in slavery and issues of civil rights. And as we just mentioned, it was not the only issue over which senators have filibustered, and neither was it, was it the dominant issue, right? But it's definitely these civil rights filibusters, those are the ones that have caused, I would argue, the most harm uh, for Americans over a long century of Senate history, right? whether it was efforts to abolish poll taxes, uh, to ban lynching, uh, to efforts to protect voting rights, uh, all sorts of civil rights questions. I guess the question is like, what do we do with that racial history and how relevant is it for reform, right? Uh, on the one hand, reform we know doesn't happen very often in the Senate, but when it does, it tends to be very closely tied to a particular policy contest, a policy issue that's been blocked. So one question, if we want to say, why is the racial history relevant? I guess the question is whether voting rights today has that type of binding power uh, across the Democratic Party, right? Are we yet at, again, a like a, a moment in history where questions of voting rights are sufficiently important today to 50 Democrats. Can they agree on what the bill would look like? And is it so important that they would break through and reform, if not ban, the legislative filibuster? So that to me is sort of why the past of the filibuster might be relevant. I don't know about, I, I don't think on the face of it, the argument that just because the filibuster was a tool of Southern segregationists, that that, that is sufficient or, or a persuasive argument to across the Democratic Party for why it should be reformed. Right? Just, just to keep in mind, like segregationist senators use a lot of Senate rules, not just the filibuster, right? Uh, and we, we're not proposing to do away with all the other ways in which segregationists and anti-civil rights groups sort of permeated the Senate for you know, at least a century's worth of history. So to bring us up to date, uh, the Biden during the Biden administration, we've already used uh, reconciliation uh, once as a um, 
as a workaround uh, to the to the legislative filibuster, and there are plans to use it at least once or twice uh, again with the with the latest uh, proposals. So, so how wide are Democrats going to find uh, this uh, path, and does it sort of mean that? Uh, the proposals are going to have to be more budget and tax related. We're going to do uh, additional things to, to for taxes and spending, but but less so on the other agendas. Uh, when I think about reconciliation, uh, and obviously it's got a so its history is from 1974, so we've got you know 40 plus years here, so it pales in comparison to the the history of the struggles over the filibuster. But it looks sort of similar, right? This persistent persistent effort to stretch it way beyond original intent or original uses. And, and for better or for worse, um, people have different views about, you know, how much fealty we should have to the origins of why reconciliation was created. Um, but, but it's not surprised that majorities that, you know, are feel themselves curtailed by uh, supermajority rules shouldn't be surprised that majorities, especially in periods of unified uh, government, Right, where they control the White House and the, both chambers, that they want to stretch it to achieve their top priorities. Um, you know, just keep in mind, uh, as as I know from all your work, American politics is far more partisan today than it was, and also Senate majorities are smaller, and so reconciliation is the only tool really uh, for uh, an aggressive and persistent majority. Does it does it put a make uh, does it force uh, parties to pursue agendas that are more budget or tax related. Um, certainly on the Republican side, it's been a good fit, uh, given the sort of priority of tax cuts over a long time for their party. Yeah, I mean, reconciliation, I think, at the outside uh, out is, is like the crowds, the guardrails here. It's pushing Democrats in that direction. But there are a lot of reasons why we legislate through the tax code regardless uh, of the benefits of reconciliation. So you don't think we're going to get to the end of the year and see, okay, infrastructure and COVID money we're able to pass, but um, you know anything on minimum wage, voting rights, this other regulatory kind of agenda stalled and we have this pure culprit. Yeah. So the regulatory part is, I mean, we got a glimpse of it on the minimum wage uh, question when they uh, did the American Recovery Act. And there was a roll call vote, which, of course, us Congress watchers love to have a roll call vote. <laughs> there were eight Democrats who uh, defected uh, from Bernie Sanders and the rest who wanted to, quote unquote, waive the bird rule so they could put minimum wage increase into reconciliation. But it's really hard to know why those eight Democrats voted against waiving the bird rule. Is this like a procedural principle? Was it they're worried about precedent of busting through reconciliation. Do they not like the $15 minimum wage? They prefer something lower, all the above. So it, I don't think Democrats, they're 50 Democrats yet for really busting through uh, reconciliation. But there may well be 50 for you know stretching it to have multiple reconciliation bills more than we're used to. So uh, one thing that reformers often say is that uh, the, these folks in the middle would have all the power under a 50-vote uh, Senate, so, so why aren't they sort of uh, in favor of, of moving it there? Um, Molly Reynolds, who we've had on the, the podcast before, um, has found that it sort of matters what those bills look like that are coming down the pike, because um, 
even though those moderate senators are considering their power on the floor, they're also kind of considering what the the agenda would would be. Um, and so she points to uh, the the. Waxman-Markey climate bill um, last time as as sort of being important for that. So um, is it uh, that maybe we we have a very large and liberal Democratic agenda that's sort of making these uh, moderate senators uh, give pause and and why if they could still block it on the floor? I mean, that's like the million dollar question. Uh, the, the, The purest form of the question is like, what is Joe Manchin thinking? <laughs> but but the broader version of the question is precisely that. Like, why are majorities, why don't they yet have a majority for nuking the filibuster? And I think Molly is, is, is right to point uh, to the ability of moderate members in particular to point to and to hide behind and blame the rules, right? Oh, we couldn't do that because we need 60. And so we never really know where different senators are on particular proposals and whether, in fact, there are 50 uh, for a version of climate change or a version of voting rights, uh, a whole host of issues, gun control and so forth. But of course, there's, you know, senators and moderates aren't the only ones like blaming the rules and blaming supermajority rules, right? Think about if you're a House member and you're a House Swing District member, uh, and you know that H.R. Uh, 1 is not going to be enacted into law the way it is. Uh, it comes out of your house. But you get a lot of bonus points from your party and activists uh, for voting for it. Uh, and you can you know, tell the moderates in your, back in your district, well, um, look, this is just the first, the first push, and the final bill will be different. So everybody's hiding. Uh, behind the filibuster. And so are presidents, right? They, they get saved from having to really uh, push comes to shove, sign things into law or not, because there are parts of them that they oppose. So on the one hand, yeah, why isn't uh, Manchin, why isn't he out there uh, turn, wanting to put the Senate into majority rule? Because yes, his power certainly is greater. Um, but uh, I think it's really hard to know until we really know where 50 senators are on many of these uh, top uh, top priorities. So the other, I guess, side of that is is people say, well, if you want this to happen, then you need to to say that uh, which of Mansion's priorities are going to be able to pass that can't pass now, and um, you know, there's there's going to be other things holding uh, these these liberal agenda items back that that he doesn't. Uh, that he doesn't support. So I guess are is it true that that maybe we they that we are forcing them to decide between sort of do they want the whole democratic agenda or do they want only the small number of things that can pass with bipartisan support or through re- reconciliation. So is that true or is there some middle ground that might get Manchin on board? It's it it's really hard to to tell and. For one, one just to keep in mind is it's not just Mansion, and we all know it's cinema. But if you look at their latest reporting, like Politico will name eight to ten Democratic senators who have yet made up their mind where they are. And how many signed on to the letter only a few years ago, right? So. Um, yeah, and of course, where you stand depends on where you sit. So right. people change, uh, and the ones who really. Yeah, so it's a little 
so it was just, I guess it's just a caveat on on Mansion that he's in good <laughs> company. And the what that like the names that surprised me uh, I saw on, on some political story was even Brian Schatz of uh, Hawaii, who's comes very liberal voting record uh, in general uh, record, uh, and yet he seemed to be in the list of people on the fence. So, so what are the prospects for that sort of slow ex- issue specific I- expansion? Are there kind of <laughs> plausible uh, ways to um, counter or change the bird rule that, uh, that, that do carve out a, a particular amount? What, if, if we said, yes, there's been a carve out a year from now, what, what would you have expected it to, to look like? So it's, it's definitely technically possible to do these carve outs. And of course, we're still left with the question, is it politically feasible, even if it's technically feasible? So, and, and, the, and really the issue here is that once, and we saw this, I think, with uh, nuking the nominate, the first set of nomination filibusters in 2013, once a party does it for anything large, it just really lowers the cost to the next version of the next time they want to nuke something. First of all, just because you can, you know, avoid blame, point to the other side and say, well, they've, they're the ones who did it first or, or most recently. Um, so, but of course, every time you make a carve out, you, you really weaken the power of the rules. And senator, some senators may care about that. <laughs> they may care about it more when they're in the minority than the majority. Uh, but, but rules lose their binding power. Right? They can't, and they can't protect themselves. So it's just every time you nuke something, small, medium, or large, you're undercutting uh, the force, which is really kind of a normative force of the rules. So the other big uh, talked about reform is some kind of um, bringing back of a talking filibuster or a changing of the rules beyond uh, that, that allow for blocking bills with less than 60 votes, but beyond that. Um, so, so what 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 is this debate uh, about? Um, does it really make much of a difference? Who has to talk? Is it just about who has to have a majority at the ready uh, to uh, at any time while a filibuster is is ongoing? So the, the talking filibuster. So let's put it this way. So what maybe helpful? What exactly is the talking filibuster, and why we? have it. And then to get to my usual caveat that the devil's and the, the devil's always in the details, but especially so on talking filibusters, right? We, we have this notion, this picture, whether it's, you know, from the Hollywood classic, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, or, you know, for those who read Robert Caro, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, master of the Senate, right? This notion of senators giving very long speeches, yielding for questions, not giving up the floor. That is the majority essentially telling the minority, if you are opposed to this bill, uh, stand on the floor uh, and show us what you got. And then it becomes a war of attrition, uh, as Greg Coger and uh, Warren Schickler and their works in filibuster have uh, nicely termed it, uh, which is the last team standing. Now, it turns out senators as early as the 1970s didn't really want to spend all their time listening to each other talk. Uh, and leaders on both sides of the aisle didn't want to spend all that time uh, not making progress on other bills, which were important to members of both the, the Democratic majority and the Republican minority. So we get to what we call tracking, that is, instead of filibustering uh, and getting stuck there, leaders negotiate. It wasn't a rule, it was just they negotiated a consent agreement. Okay, we're going to do this EPA 
bill first, and then we'll uh, move on to the farm bill, right? And if one gets filibustered, no problem, we'll move on to the second track. And of course, then we get a change in the cloture rule in 1975, and suddenly we have a world where leaders structure the chamber by filing cloture motions that then need 60 votes. And so why take the risk? Why spend the time? Why inconvenience either party, uh, especially the majority, by spending days and nights? And, you know, old talking filibusters went on for months, right? Even like the 1957, like the Civil Rights uh, Act that Lyndon Johnson wanted passed. It took months. So uh, that's what uh, reformers, many of them are pushing for. Let's bring back this talking filibuster. I think uh, a couple dilemmas here. First, the details here. Some senators are very clear what they want this to look like. Uh, Senator Merkley, almost for a decade now, has had a proposal which would, in essence, once a talking filibuster began, if they were to give up, the presiding officer would declare the debate over and then there'd be a simple majority cloture, right? Which doesn't exist in the rules right now. Other people just say, don't imagine rule changes. It's just, well, let's just change our behavior. Let's just force Mitch McConnell and the Republicans to hold the floor. And then it's not really clear, like, how do they get to a vote? Um, there is precedent in Senate rules that allow the presiding officer when no one else wants to talk. He could put the question to a vote, but we tend not to see it used that way. So there are some behavioral changes here that majority and the minority uh, would have to undertake to convince me that a talking filibuster would actually uh, sort of really create the conditions that its, that its proponents are, are pushing for. And, and, and just to keep in mind, if it's the middle of the night and a tactic, of course, of filibustering senators is to notice the absence of a quorum and there, suddenly there's a quorum call in the middle of the night and the, it's the majority that wants to keep the bill going, right? The, the opposition would love to kill it by not having a quorum. And so it's the majority who has to round up, round up the 51 senators uh, in the middle of the night. Otherwise, the Senate has to adjourn. So... Do talking filibusters really put the burden onto the opposition? Maybe, maybe not. Is that sufficient to get the Senate to up or down votes? I think we really don't know yet. So what about the spirit of the the proposal that it just needs to be harder, there needs to be more of a cost to filibustering, even if we don't uh, uh, eliminate it? Is, is there a feasible way to achieve that? So, I mean, I think it's up to... Well, I guess this is factually true as well as rhetorically true. It's up to senators, right? Are they willing, um, especially on the majority side of the aisle, are they willing to invest the time in a particular issue knowing that the minority, in fact, might like the limelight and might be willing to keep a filibuster going, right? Are they willing to give up their own time, which is spent meeting with groups, raising money, traveling, right? Uh, all sorts of things have senators spend their time. Do they really want to be around the Senate 24-7 for weeks or longer on end in pursuit of one particular policy issue? Um, that's a decision they have to make, and that's the only way to shift the burden to the opposition. 
So uh, I try to parse very uh, in detailed fashion what uh, Senator Manchin says when he uh, talks about the filibuster. And one thing that I don't think has gotten that much attention is that he he seems, although when he says he's for uh, reforms of the filibuster, he seems to imply that the reforms themselves would be agreed on by both parties in some respect. Um, and it seems like that's another way of saying there won't be any <laughs> any reform. In other words, if you're only for a reform to empower the majority party when it's supported by the minority party, then maybe you're not for reform a- at all. What do you think? So, I mean, you put your finger on precisely the, the distinction here between votes for reform for support for reform and support for how you're going to get reform, right? Do you, let's say you support majority cloture, but you don't support the nuclear option. Well, we're not really talking about that around Washington, although we probably should be. And that's what Joe Manchin, as you point out, seems to be signaling and in cinema as well. Now, that's also not a new issue in the Senate, right? That is really the history of those 20th century efforts to try to reform the filibuster and, in fact, to impose majority cloture. Um, we have enough, not a lot of votes, but we have enough votes uh, and debates from the 20th century episodes to know that there was often a majority for majority cloture, but not a majority for doing it through the new, what we now call the nuclear option. So uh, Manchin is not alone. Uh, he's not novel as a senator who sees those issues differently. Um, but how you ever get to, under the Senate rules, require actually, if there's a filibuster of the motion to reform the filibuster, that's a two-thirds vote. So we're reaching pretty far into uh, the Republican conference ranks uh, to imagine a bipartisan uh, proposal uh, for reform that they'll accept. And then, yeah, like what would you have to give to the Republicans, to the minority, that would make it worthwhile for them? I'm hard-pressed to see that. And doesn't the same logic apply to, to any of this, any of the, you know, over, overruling the parliamentarian on the, the bird rule or, or any kind of exception to the rule? Um, if, if people aren't willing to do that with a majority vote, then, then it's pretty hard to see any reform working. Yeah, and I, I think that's what we got a taste of on that minimum wage uh, vote on uh, waiving the bird rule. Again, with the caveat, it's hard to know precisely why senators took that position that they did. But the fact that there were eight Democrats who are unwilling to go along with a uh, sort of, you know, a top, top Biden priority from his campaign about $15 an hour minimum wage um, suggests that those, that there are at least some senators here in the majority for whom the rules really are a sticking point. Um, and they're cautious about, you know, quote unquote, circumventing them. So Frances Lee has also been on the the podcast and, and she finds that, um, we, we sort of overstate the degree to which um, we, we get sort of partisan uh, policymaking in, in general. We still have uh, most major policies passed with bipartisan and overwhelming support. Um, I, I looked just at the last Congress um, and saw that all 10 of, of Mayhew's uh, major laws passed with bipartisan and supermajority support uh, as well. Um, so I, I guess some, some people would say the filibuster is sort of just an excuse here um, that that 
majority parties really don't like to pass things with only their own support. They like that to be a, a pretty rare kind of, of phenomenon. What do you think? So I, I guess the, the answer is sort of yes and no. I mean, uh, Francis and uh, Jim Curry wrote a, a really nice uh, new book that kind of l- lays out the argument about sort of what they call the limits of party here. And it's certainly the case that outside of reconciliation and outside of a handful of rules that, as Molly Reynolds calls them, exceptions to the rule, right, where they've changed the statute to empower majorities, outside of those exceptions, it is difficult to legislate, obviously, uh, because of both not just because of this filibuster, but because of other kind of veto points built into the built into the system. Now, having said that, I, I, I'm a strong believer in uh, denominators. I, I want to know what are the things at the end of the day that aren't getting enacted uh, and often aren't getting any traction, although we know them to be the big issues of the day, because though that's where... Right, that's where the other issues are that may be more partisan that don't end up in the numerator of an act of enactments. So the, I guess to, to push a little bit on this. So the, um, you know, we, we've only, we've passed one major bill in the, in the new um, uh, democratic uh, uh, unified government. Um, and it was a bill that had no pay force and was a uh, obvious response to uh, <laughs> <laughs> the largest issue of the moment. Um, uh, now that we're moving on, we're already starting to see some of the dynamics that uh, that Lee and, um, and and Curry point to. Um, that with the, that a lot of the problems are within the the Democratic uh, caucus, um, and a lot of the problems are sort of in the interest group world, and the um, you know that that there are there are challenges to to lawmaking um that that might be blamed on on the filibuster um but really that it's just very hard to get momentum for something that is going to pass narrowly with only uh the the single majority support so i guess that just looking at the agenda ahead there would be one there will be one story that says okay a lot of stuff failed and it was all because of the filibuster but there will always be that kind of second alternative that, well, a lot of stuff failed and the filibuster was kind of the excuse, but um, it, it failed really because it, it failed to develop the an interest group enacting coalition and to get enough support even within the majority party. I, I think, I guess I would think of it this way, it, that this is not 100% of, of, of either. So what do I mean by that? When Back when Steve uh, Smith and I wrote uh, Politics of Principle, one of the exercises we did was to go back and try to figure out what were the measures that appeared actually to have been killed by a filibuster, like where there was evidence of majority House support majority Senate support, which is hard to establish given the filibuster, but also the president signed the president would have signed something. And that's a little hard to do, but we do come up (laughs) with dozens of measures over the 20th century that there does appear to have been actually killed by the filibuster. So um, on the one hand, yes, there are lots of veto points, including the filibuster, and it, it clouds what we know about what would pass by just party rule. But on the other hand, we do have evidence of the filibuster actually killing things. Um, so uh, it's not a clear uh, story to me I, either, either way there. 
So another way this is sometimes looked at is is to the extent to which the the filibuster pivot the most likely tenth senator in our our case um, to to go along uh, with uh, the the policy is is really particularly influential and and there's some debate about it but there some analyses sort of show that that it may not may not be that influential um, and and in our period it may be just that there isn't there isn't a very much that would appeal to that 10th senator but but would not appeal to the Republican party as a whole or a larger part of it. So I guess to to what extent is this just about whether something is bipartisan as in supported by both parties leaderships versus not um, versus that that there is actually some potential to get that 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 10th senator that shows up at the White House. Um, so I, I think that this is a good question. I, I think about it in two different ways. Um, so the the first way, of of course, is that when we're trying to figure out what difference, like which is the pivotal pivot, right? Is the majority, is it, are we talking about the majority party? Are we talking about the floor? Are we talking about the, the filibuster, like that 60th senator? Uh, of course, that de- depends on the underlying distribution of, if we think in a left-right world, like the underlying distribution of ideologies in the Senate. Right. Were we back in a world where, you know, 30, 40 percent, you know, back in the mid 20th century of uh, of the Senate were somewhat centrist, right, that there were conservatives and in the Democratic Party and there were actual liberals. We call them liberals in the Republican Party. Right. The the, the ability to the, the 60th senator is not going to be as much that far away from anybody else. And so. um that's quite a bit different in a, in a bipolar world where we are today, where what the 60th senator wants can be quite a bit different uh, than what the 50th person wants. And in fact, if you get 60 votes, you're probably going to get 80, right? So it's I think the impact of the filibuster pivots is conditional on what the rest of the Senate looks like. But I think the the other point here, or the other way to think about it is, I think sometimes we have in mind uh, a view, and this is something I've written with Francis um, Lee a few years ago. I think I think we often have in mind a very um, zero sum view of the world, right? Uh, that my party gets something, uh, and so your party has to lose something, right? And so it's the idea it, in that sort of deal making. It's not often what we get, right? Or at least not always what we get. It, it's more often, and, and we see this in all those COVID bills last year that were quote unquote bipartisan, right? And they were more win-win. They were positive sun. Democrats got enhanced uh, unemployment benefits. Uh, Republicans, they really got their t- top priority were these small business PPP loans, uh, loans and grants, right? And so it's not that we have to moderate bills to pick up the 60th senator. It's that the two party leaders in often the leaders, are in the room and each party is trying to get its top priority and in exchange has to sort of say to the other party, okay, you can have your top priority too. So just to push a little bit on that, is it the, that we have this distribution of you? So one story is, you know, the, the, they, the 10 senators went to the White House, but those 10 senators mostly agree with their, their party. And so there's not... Um, there's sort of not any way to satisfy them without satisfying the Republican Party as a whole. Uh, another story is just that we're in a very partisan world, and so there's there's only two worlds: the world in which we get full partisan bipartisan support, or the reason, or the world in which we pass things by one party alone. And and this 
hope for something in the middle is is really just just not there, even if there was some agreement. Yeah, I think I think that is a reasonable way to think about it, and it does at least give rise to the question: as though what are the conditions under which, if there are any, or what are the issues under which, or the circumstances under which, any of those ten senators or all ten of them would, uh, in essence, go and make a deal, right? And and ten's a lot of senators, so makes suggest suggest it's not going to happen. Um, but we have we have ample episodes uh, in support of what you just argued, where McConnell, as a minority leader over the course of the Obama administration, sort of pulled back those Republicans, even those like on Dodd Frank, where they were negotiating. He said, "Nope." <laughs> Called Bob Corker and said, "This is over. You're not negotiating anymore." Uh, and in that world, you're never. <laughs> never going to get to 60 unless you have the leadership in the room getting what they want. So we've also had uh, James Walner on, uh, who's argued uh, that uh, we, we've sort of understated the role of the minority party in um, in filibuster reform, that the minority party can, can make credible threats um, in some circumstances, and that, for example, you know, they, they do sometimes and, and don't others, like when the, the, we were extended to the Supreme Court, um, only sort of a lackluster, uh, <laughs> a lackluster uh, opposition. So uh, McConnell um, has said he, he, you know, don't, don't test me. We're going to have a scorched earth Senate. The world will end. Um, how, how credible are those uh, threats and, and what, what do they entail? So for a while, in the at least in the run-up to 2013, when we saw that sort of big, uh, the, the banning the nomination, most of the nomination filibusters. So political scientists had really kind of two competing views of these threats. And I would put James Walner in a closer to the camp where Steve Smith and Tony Madonna and I had written um, that the that the threat of the argument was right. Or let's step back a second. What are these theories about? They were, they were about why the Senate so rarely reforms the filibuster, right? Um, as as Walner has argued that minority threats are key to preventing filibuster reform. So these are arguments for why the Senate rarely changes. And one was, as as you suggested, James have argued, right, a threat of minority retaliation tames the majority. They back off reform. They don't want to live in a world um, where McConnell has, and the Republicans have blown up all the bridges. Of course, as Harry Reid, the majority leader in 2013, said when he went nuclear, there are no more bridges to blow up, right, that they had assessed the situation was so bad on nominations that they didn't feel there was a cost. And so those threats uh, from the minority didn't really, they fell on deaf, deaf ears. Um, the other argument, this sort of more sort of Greg Coger, uh, Greg Warrow, and Eric Chickler, right? They've argued historically that the threat of going nuclear tames the minority, right? The minority is going not to blow up all the bridges because they are worried that the majority is going to, going to, uh, do away with the filibuster, right? By, uh, by this nuclear nuclear motion. Well, all of us were wrong because Reed, <laughs> Reed went nuclear. Right? These are theories of why the Senate doesn't change. So what are we what are we to make of this? Is the threat of minority retaliation credible? Well, it really wasn't in 2013. And in fact, the Republicans didn't really shut things down. They could have, they could have tried, but they didn't. They probably decided it wasn't worth their 
time, uh, especially after um, Republic after Democrats had uh, essentially secured uh, nominations, uh, getting them onto onto the court. Um, is the but at the same time, right? Is the threat of going nuclear is that credible? Well, as as you pointed out, so long as Joe Manchin is saying I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ever vote to go nuclear, then no, it's it's not a credible threat. So. I think we're in a in a world here where I mean to some extent it's a bit of a test is going to go on now if Republicans are worried about uh, Democrats possibly converting Manchin and Cinema and others into being willing to go nuclear is that going to tame their obstructionism is that going to curtail Republicans from you know blocking consent and voting against cloture on everything. Maybe, maybe not. But right, it's a, here we are, another test uh, on the credibility of of both both sides here uh, to try to get what they want. So it just gives a sense of what that would look like, though. If McConnell is 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 not bluffing to the extent that he he can, and there is some change to the the filibuster, uh, you know, what 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 would it look like? And I guess what would temper our uh, why why might it hurt the minority party more than it was worth it? So what would it look like? Uh, and then we'll come back to whether or not it would hurt the minority, because I think that's at least debatable. Um, what it would look like, it was, as they now always have someone stationed on the floor, but they would be objecting every time uh, Senator, Senate Majority Leader asked for other Senate, Democratic senators asked for consent. And this could be anything from negotiating an agreement on how, uh, when they're going to vote over the next two days to uh, waiving the rule that doesn't allow committees to meet in the after, after 2 p.m., right? Sort of the need for consent, it, it permeates how the Senate runs itself. They're asking consent all the time. And a really nuclear move on the minority's part would never to agree to any of that. And that would certainly harm the majority. Uh, and would it blow back on the minority? Well, it's usually majorities that get blamed for failing to govern and failing to make progress, even if the problem, even if they pinpoint and want to blame the minority for it. So the other uh, threat is that uh, the majority now might be the minority uh, later, um, but there there has been uh, some kind of pushback to that, especially by Democrats saying that uh, Republicans just don't have as big of a, an agenda that that is being blocked by the by the filibuster. They're sort of you know as you said, better able to get kind of their tax and budget stuff through and, and may not have a demonstrated agenda that, that, that they would be able to get through. So if they, if they gained uh, full power and only took a majority to, to pass legislation. So, so what do you think of that, that argument? Uh, how much should Democrats fear uh, Republicans having a, a filibuster free Senate? I suspect were Democrats to nuke the filibuster I, I do think they would miss it <laughs> when they found themselves in the minority. Just as a general, I think they're used to living in a world where even on things as routine as spending bills, it can't be done without buy-in from the minority. Even if we think majority Republican majorities might not be as draconian, right, cutting entitlements and so forth, as they claim they want to be. Um, so uh, there's that. Uh, is it the case that Republicans have a small governing agenda and the things that they want to be done these years, court, uh, judges, which are majority rule, and uh, tax cuts, which are majority rule. Um, there's a lot of heft to that as an assessment of today's Republican 
party and what many would call a lack of a governing uh, governing agenda. Um, so in that sense, yes. Um, I, I guess I would just uh, point out or keep in mind that like periods of unified party control, um, they're relatively rare in our uh, contemporary political system. And when a majority gets them or the party gets them, they don't last very long at all. And so we're also talking about a world of majority rule under divided government, where there will have to be compromise regardless, right? because the other party uh, is in the White House. So uh, I could I, I think no, I've not never done a, a long historical uh, careful study of which party has benefited more or less. So the other um, objection we hear to uh, filibuster reform is that it would make the Senate like the House. Uh, you have uh, written a lot on, on differences between the chambers as well. So uh, to, to what extent is that is that well-founded? Um, is it the rules that make the, the House and Senate uh, uh, different? Uh, and, and to what extent are they still different? Um, so I think sometimes people think I'm pretty naive when I, when I say this, but whatever. Um, I, I'm a bit of a skeptic. Um, that you would uh, automatically or even very swiftly have the Senate just become just like the House if the filibuster were substantially weakened. Um, definitely the rules make a difference here uh, in the policy choices of the two chambers. Um, however, I mean, as, as, as we all know, the senators represent different types of constituencies, even if Right there's more sort of partisan distinction. Right, very few uh, delegations uh, with uh, you know, split party delegations uh, in the Senate today. They do have longer terms. Uh, they don't all obviously, if they're up at a staggered election, come in. They don't all come in uh, when a new president is elected. Some of them never run on the ballot with the president, and so there is some insulation, some degree of insulation. Uh, from these sort of pervasive partisan pressures um, that otherwise encourage lawmakers to think and act like their fellow partisans. So we often get rules reform when we don't just have sort of one interest that would would benefit, um, not just the majority party, but may maybe some other interest uh, that that might be cross cutting committee chairs or backbenchers or leadership or uh, some something or the institution itself. So is there any kind of an acting coalition for for reform in the Senate that that is anything other than what will be characterized as a majority party power play? Um, it might not have other support. So I'm a little skeptical that in today's Senate, those past type of bipartisan coalitions with, as you said, overlapping interests are really can be recreated today. I think in the, in the past, at least in the Senate, where we've seen reform of Rule 22, the, the cloture rule, there was at least the most recent one, right, or the, where they actually changed the rules. So rule, back in 1975, when they lowered the threshold to 60 votes, there was impatience um, within both parties with the extremes of their parties, both on the left and on the right. But of course, it was a much less partisan period. And so the parties looked differently. And so we shouldn't be surprised that uh, the middle <laughs> might have been both middle and both parties uh, might have been bumped out by the activists and the bomb throwers on the left uh, and the right. 
Is there a potential coalition today? We've seen over the last decade an occasional little handshake at the beginning of uh, the Congress where they have pared back a little bit with bipartisan support. Um, but these are pretty small reforms. So just one example, it, there used to be three debatable motions in all to get the Senate into a conference committee. And that essentially has been reduced to one debatable motion. So we've eliminated three filibusters down to one filibuster. <laughs> and funny enough, both sides could agree to that. Um, so could there be small incremental tryouts? Yeah. Possibly, would, what would Republicans would need to get something out of it? Perhaps some guarantees on offering amendments? But uh, things are pretty toxic, so it seems, uh, on in the Senate today. And so I'm a little skeptical that the conditions right now are really ripe for even the smallest of handshakes. But uh, then again, I was quite surprised in 2013 as I was staring at Reed bringing the Senate nuclear. So <laughs> who knows? So tell us about your uh, the, what you're working on now about uh, sticky rules and, and fragile norms in American politics and sort of how is the Senate, <laughs> is reform of the filibuster in the Senate sort of a, a central case? Is it like other uh, sort of institutional issues we're, we're facing now? Where does it fit? So that's an excellent question, and I'm only sort of starting out on this project and trying to kind of figure out what <laughs> what exactly is the motivating question, or how would I do this project in, empirically? I, I would say first of all that I, and this is to me to some degree a lesson from the Trump years that it could be hard to disentangle the effects of rules and the effects of norms that an awful lot of norms under and norms of sort of cooperation and norms of forbearance, that is, I'm not going to break all the guard rules just because I have the authority to do so. It, it, it's hard to disentangle them and that these rules persist because they're buffeted by this norm of forbearance. And that's what makes rules sticky, right? It's harder to change them because there's some sort of agreement that that both sides were not going to totally exploit them. That said, it's not just the Senate filibuster where we see these, and some people call them sort of constitutional hardball or institutional hardball. There's lots of hardball in American politics. Uh, Trump, replacing Janet Yellen as chair of the Fed, broke a very, very long-standing uh, almost the whole history of the 100-year history of the Fed, a bipartisan tradition of uh, reappointing the previous president's uh, chair, even if he or she was from the other party. Hardball is everywhere. Majorities bend rules when they can to get the outcomes they want. At the same time, there's a lot of forbearance in our system. And I would like to know, not just in the case of the Senate filibuster, but like, what are the conditions that lead parties to actually pull the trigger on hardball? Whether it's stretching reconciliation, uh, whether it's, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, holding on to the articles of impeachment, the first, <laughs> the first set of Trump impeachment articles while she waited to see if any witnesses would come forward, it seemed, for a Senate trial. So... Um, I, I want to understand a little bit 
more about why any bit of forbearance still exists, why, when, and where, uh, and of course, with what consequence. So we've spent an, an hour talking about uh, the the potential for filibuster reform, and honestly, it doesn't seem very likely uh, in the in the near near future. So I guess I'm wondering why it seems like everyone believes that it's inevitable; it will happen at some point. The Joe Mansions of the world are are dying out, and so the next time, sort of, there is a majority party that can do it, they'll they'll do it. Um, it can can both be true? Do we uh, do we do we understate the the stability of of American institutions, or or is there somewhere in between? That's the six million dollar <laughs> question. I already gave you a million bucks for an earlier an earlier question. Uh, so the the long march here, the long history of the Senate is towards majority rule. Right? It 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 was originally moved by majorities. It once it strangled itself and saddled itself with filibusters and unanimous consent and so forth, over history, there's been incremental and sometimes bursts of reform towards majority rule. And I think that those same urges, right, the frustration of majorities trying to legislate and to solve problems, regardless of whether the parties agree on whether they are problems, right, that urge to make the Senate work, that's age old. And Given the number and types of problems that Democrats at this iteration have identified, I'm not surprised they're still pushing. And given how partisan uh, all of our political institutions increasingly seem to be, I'm no surprise it seems to be boiling again. So when it happens, whether it happens, I obviously don't know. But these pressures really aren't subsiding anytime soon. I certainly don't think. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Sarah Bender for joining me. Please check out her books and articles and her regular commentary on the monkey cage at the Washington Post. And then listen in next time. 